Welcome to episode 103 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today are regular panelists Carla Godwin and Katie Grubbs. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hey, how's it going? So, before we get into what today's episode is about, I want to go around the table and introduce ourselves for anybody who's new to the program. Carla, you start. Sure. Uh, my name is Carla Godwin. I um, live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, let's see, it says here, relevant education. So I have a master's degree in uh, English from the University of Nebraska. I um, am currently an event manager for Boat Common Good. I am also director of She Is Called and host of the Holy Writ Podcast. Thanks, Carla. Happy to have you here. Thanks. Katie, tell us about you. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Sugarland, Texas, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, I am a Bible study teacher, and I spend most of my time um, taking care of our uh, four children. Thanks, Katie. Uh, and I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I, like Katie, am also married to a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast, my husband Michael Farmer. Uh, we live in Minnetonka, Minnesota. I am currently in between jobs, uh, though I am waiting for the results of a couple of job interviews, so I will be on pins and needles and compulsively refreshing my email for the next couple of days. So before we get into our main topic of discussion today, we are super excited to announce that the next few episodes of the Christian Feminist Podcast are sponsored. If you've listened to us before, you know we spend a ton of our time on the show discussing the intersections of our faith and our scholarship. Uh, some of us are career scholars, some of us aren't, but uh, nevertheless we talk a lot about those two things. Because we live our lives inside this intersection, we're happy to be sponsored by Zondervan's new Comfort Print NRSV Bible, which is easy to read and packed full of scholarly glosses and resources. If you'd like to learn more about this new edition or see all the com Comfort Print options available, visit nrsv.net. So today's episode is about uh, the poet Emily Dickinson. We haven't done a lot of poetry episodes uh, for whatever reason, um, which is kind of silly since most of us are trained literary scholars, uh, and I wanted to start to talk about poetry a little bit more, so when our previous episode plan fell through, I suggested Dickinson. Uh, so for our knowing section, as we start every episode, um, I want to talk about Dickinson's biography a little bit. 
And when I was preparing for that section of the show, I read a bunch of different biographies from a bunch of different places, and I was really struck by the online version of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, it has some similar information uh, to other Dickinson biographies, but I thought its, its tone was kind of interesting. So I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the online uh, Britannica version, uh, and then we can maybe talk a little bit about this. American lyric poet Emily Dickinson lived in seclusion and commanded a singular brilliance of style and integrity of vision. With Walt Whitman, Dickinson is widely considered to be one of the two leading 19th century American poets. Only 10 of Dickinson's nearly 1800 poems are known to have been published in her lifetime. Devoted to private pursuits, she sent hundreds of poems to friends and correspondents while apparently keeping the greater number to herself. She habitually worked in verse forms suggestive of hymns and ballads, with lines of three or four stresses. Her unusual off-rhymes have been seen as experimental and influenced by the 18th century hymnist Isaac Watts. She freely ignored usual rules of versification and even of grammar, and in the intellectual content of her work she likewise proved exceptionally bold and original. Her verse is distinguished by its epigrammatic compression, haunting personal voice, enigmatic brilliance, and lack of high polish. As a girl, Emily was seen as frail by her parents and others, and was often kept home from school. Uh, more information about her educational history. She was fond of her teachers, but when she left home to attend Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, now Mount Holyoke College, she found the school's institutional tone uncongenial. Mount Holyoke's strict rules and invasive religious practices, along with her own homesickness and growing rebelliousness, explain why she did not return for a second year. At home, as well as at school and church, the religious faith that ruled the poet's early years was evangelical Calvinism, a faith centered on the belief that humans are born totally depraved and can be saved only if they undergo a life-altering conversion in which they accept the vicarious sacrifice of Christ. Questioning this tradition soon after leaving Mount Holyoke, Dickinson was to be the only member of her family who did not experience conversion or join the local church. Yet, she seems to have retained a belief in the soul's immortality, or at least to have transmuted it into a romantic quest for the transcendent and absolute. Uh, and then there's a couple of lines about her relationship to the transcendentalist poets. So, what do you guys think about that biography? What does it have in it that you would expect it to have from a biography of Dickinson? And is there anything that you found weird? I mean, I'm immediately going to take exception to this phrase, lack of high polish, because it's not defined. And what does that mean? What is lack of high polish? What makes it high polish? I, I mean, it's true that, you know, her work looks very different than something like a, a Renaissance or a, like an English Renaissance sonnet with, you know, it's very tight rules, but they also violated those rules all the time. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm confused about what high polish is. Um, that was one of the things that drove me crazy right from the beginning. I think it probably means she uses simple language, but she certainly doesn't use it in simple ways. So yeah, that's, that's a little troubling. Also, one would argue that you have to be, perhaps that you have to be more polished to say more with less. I, you know, I, I would, I don't know. I might say that, um, that the images that she evokes in very few words, I would personally think of that as more skilled. Um, 
potentially more polished than something much more that uses much more words to to do the same thing. But um, but that could just be a personal preference thing in my own. Totally. I, I want to throw in there. I read um, the intro to the complete poem, poems of Emily Dickinson, edited by Thomas H. Johnson. And in his intro, he writes about her sending her poetry to Thomas Higginson, who was a publisher she admired, who had put out like a plea for more popular poetry and some of his work he was doing. Yeah, so what she, she says to him is amazing. Yeah, the things she says to him, but also then why he chooses not to use that much of her poetry relates to this idea of what her language is like that we're talking about. So I'm going to read just a little bit of that. And one of the things that it says is, as he phrased his opinion to a friend, her verses were, in quotes, remarkable though odd, ellipsis, too delicate, not strong enough to publish, was what he said about her work. Um, and I read another reviewer um, who talked about the fact that her work was just too, it wasn't uh, solid enough, it was too ephemeral, it was too this, it was too that. And of course, my brain wanted to put in there too, feminine. Too feminine, yeah, too delicate, not solid enough, ooh. Right. So, and this was, this was really interesting as this, as the intro went on that Thomas Johnson wrote, he said, um, let's see, an unorthodoxy of melodic pattern controlled by keywords wherein the parts express the whole, the altering of metric beat to slow or speed the nature of time itself, the theme of the alabaster thumb poem, which I don't think we're going to read, but is a great one. Give it dimensions, which he was not equipped to estimate. He was trying to measure a cube by the rules of plane geometry. Plane being P-L-A-N-E, plane geometry, flat geometry. He was trying to measure a cube by that, which I thought was super interesting. If you think about um, the idea of the masculine use of language and the flat, like the, the, the heavy, the weighted, the things that he was trying to measure by didn't apply to what she was trying to write. And what she did was basically ask him to validate the kind of work she was doing, and he didn't. Um, and so she stopped submitting, which is why, what, 10 of her poems were published during her lifetime? She just took his word for it. She took his word that her stuff was not valid and didn't continue trying to publish, you know? So that whole thing, that whole thing of like her submitting work, her being told, like that's the worst thing you can think to hear from a from a, someone you want to take your work seriously is that it's not serious enough, it's not weighty enough, it doesn't have the right, you know, gravitas or whatever. Um, and she just, she took his word for it, which um, it's just super interesting to me when I think about it. Like what if she hadn't? You know? Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense that she did, right? I mean, absolutely. Th this is this is sort of the validating voice. Um, mm -hmm. Something that uh, that I think is interesting is what she writes in the letter to him. Uh, she asks him to please tell her if her verse is alive. Yeah. Yep. Which I I think, given the the preoccupations of the actual poems, is such a um, such a telling phrase. Totally. And they ended up with a lifelong correspondence, right? Where she would send him stuff, and and so her verse was clearly alive to him, right? It captured him enough that their correspondence went on and on, but he didn't think he could publish it. Yeah, their their letters are are super interesting. Um, I I should maybe link to um an edition of those letters in the show notes as well. Um, really quick, two things about that. The letter that she wrote him reads like a poem. I mean, I think that you could say that it is, which is interesting. But also it's really interesting um, that she was asking if the poem, if the poetry was alive, because one of the things that I read um, is like his description of her when they finally met in person, um, which is because after corresponding for, you know, 
like years. I mean, they finally met in person, but um, his description of her was not particularly flattering, but the way that he describes her is that is, is as a person who is intensely alive. Yeah. Like um, he, so he said um, he described her as a little plain woman with two smooth bands of reddish hair and a very plain and exquisitely clean white PK and blue net worsted shawl. Um, and then he also said, um, end quote, sorry. He also said that he never was, quote, with anyone who drained my nerve power so much without touching her, she drew from me. Yeah. Um, which is a super, super. Int- and, and he also said, she I'm said glad not to live near her. Dra- which drained his nerve power? Yeah, yeah. He, said, he, said, he said that's succubus language. It really is. And he said he was glad not to live close to her. And that's fascinating that that they could correspond for so many years, like and be, you know, and be kind of epistolary friends. But then when they meet in person, the way he describes her is is so alive that she's like sucking the the energy from him. And so it's super interesting that she's writing to him saying, hey, is my verse alive? Like, you know, I don't know. That's so interesting. Those things taken together are so interesting to me. And it it really, it really um, underlines what Carla was saying about like, no matter what she does, she's too, too, too much, too everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think the other thing, Victoria, about the part that you read from the, from the Encyclopedia Britannica is um, just that she, that she moved away from her Calvinist heritage. I was surprised to know that. Um, I have only, my, my degree is in British lit, so I haven't read a lot of her in scholarly work. Um, so I didn't know that about her. I didn't know that she moved so thoroughly away from the Calvinist upbringing that she'd had and like didn't join the church, didn't actually believe in conversion. All of that was new to me. And I find it super interesting in the way that she writes and the way that she engages nature. And there's sort of a mysticism in the way that she writes that I think um, for me explains a lot about why she moved away from Calvinism. Um, so, so I hear it in her writing and I was surprised to find it to be true. You know, yeah, I I guess I always knew that I've been into Dickinson for a a super long time. Um, So I I read a lot about her, especially when I was younger. But the thing that I love um, the most about her religious poetry specifically is how much room for doubt there is in it. I've I've always really respected that. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so. That might be a good segue into let's just talk um, a little bit more about our own experiences and history with Dickinson's poetry before we jump into the poems themselves. Um, Carla, you already said a little bit, but can you say more? What's your history with Dickinson? That's most of what I have to say. I remember being kind of fascinated by her when I was a child because she, the idea of her being, or, or maybe like high school age, her being a recluse and um, the poet recluse was sort of something that I had some kind of idealized image of. And so she was in my mind as kind of an ideal. Um, so I read some of her work in, in high school. Um, and then in college, somebody gave me a book of her work that I just read all the way through and loved and loved. And um, find again that like uh, sort of as the, as the uh, biography that you read talked about like the transcendentalist ideals that were there resonated for me. So I loved her poetry. Um, In grad school, I didn't study her at all and then have only read her sporadically since. So I would say it's not been, um, she's not been a poet that I've centered on or reread a lot, but coming back to it just for the episode, I was like, oh my word, there's a lot here. (laughs) It's super fun to come back to and read again. So that's most of my background with her. It's not super in depth. 
Cool. I'm glad that you uh, that you found more depth and and more to enjoy uh, through this reread. That's cool. Uh, so I'll go next, and then Katie can round us out. Um, Dickinson was the first writer I ever called my favorite poet. Uh, I was about 10 or 11 when I started reading her. Um, at the time, I uh, lived with my mom a couple years after my parents divorced, and my grandmother, who lived in the same town as us, uh, spent a lot of time um, helping with me after school, uh, spending time with me when my mom was at work, that kind of stuff, and uh, she was a big reader her whole life. One of the things we talked about a lot was poetry. She was really the first person outside of, like, school teachers and professors who really taught me how to read poetry. She taught me about figurative language and rhythm and meter, and uh, the first uh, book of poetry she ever gave me was uh, a complete Emily Dickinson. I still have the copy that has uh, her handwritten inscription in the front. Uh, she has since passed away, and that book, um, with her handwriting and, and her favorite poems marked, uh, and, and some of my initial scansion attempts, and which are bad and wrong, but I will not erase them, uh, in it is, is one of my very prized possessions, uh, and I will keep it always, always, always. That's so wonderful. Thanks. Um, so I, when I when I think back about why I was so into her poetry at that age, um, I think 10, 11 year old me probably related really strongly to the feelings of isolation and uh, and, and really deep observation of the world uh, around her um, as a disabled kid. Um, when you're not super active, you become a really good observer and a really good reader of people. So when I was young and I found out that um, Dickinson was uh, sickly and, and spent a lot of time in her house, I that didn't surprise me at all. I kind of could feel it already. Uh, so I, I think that's that's part of the resonance of, of her poetry to me. Um, when I was teaching, I would often tell my students that Dickinson is kind of like the weird girl gateway poet. <laughs> She's like who you read before you graduate to um, people like Plath or Parker or Anne Sexton. Uh, and I, th I think um, the reason that she's a good gateway to uh, some, in some ways, more grown-up uh, angsty lady poetry is she writes about some really deep, negative, um, not often expressed or not often vocally expressed negative emotion, um, but she does it in really uh, simple, direct language that I think is easy to comprehend if you're a younger reader um, and, and maybe reads deeper and, and differently as you get older and mature with the material. So that's that's my Dickinson uh, theory and experience. Katie, how about you? Mine is much more simple, but I, I did have an arc with Dickinson when I first, I think I first read Dickinson in high school, maybe English high school English class. And at the time, I really I didn't like her work, but that's because at that time I was very much 
attached to the idea that there should be structure in poetry um, without realizing because I wasn't skilled yet at scansion or anything like that without realizing that there absolutely is structure in her poetry so that I looked at it on the page and thought it's just it's too it's all over the place I you know I I, di I didn't get it I didn't understand that there was structure and I didn't understand um and, and also I just did I mean I hadn't read enough of it I think with Dickinson you know you you kind of can't read you know, if you read kind of three poems as a teenager, then you maybe don't realize um, what she's doing and how she's structuring and how she's um, creating the flow through the poetry and um, and things like that. So I kind of, you know, dismissed dismissed her in my first encounter with her, uh, sadly. And then um, years later, though, as a much more skilled reader, came back around again um, and developed really a love for, um, for her poetry, the ways that she... Um, structures lines. I now now that I'm um, grown and a much more skilled reader, I can feel I can feel the rhythm in, in the poetry in a way that I didn't when I was like a high schooler who'd mostly read kind of Shakespearean sonnets, and so I was looking for really obvious markers of structure and form, um, and you know more external form, less internal form. I didn't get how to grasp internal form yet, um, and. I, as a as a grown person, I also very very much appreciate um, which and and this will surprise no one who you know um, who knows what I did for all my graduate school dissertation work. But I really appreciate how much she focuses on death. Um, like you said, Victoria, she's confronting really difficult stuff, but in a way that sometimes feels almost whimsical. Um, and and we're going to talk about um, one of those poems here in a minute, but. I, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of any, any personifications of death and always has been, um, and I always have been. And so I, I really, I really enjoy the way that she, in some of her poems, makes death into a personality. It reminds me of medieval morality plays, um, in, in some ways, but then also, you know, coming into the future, it makes me think of Terry Pratchett. Um, and so there's this kind of, um, there's, she does interesting things, um, with, and even if she's describing something completely mundane, I was reading the poem um, earlier today and I can't remember um, the name of it. The first line is a narrow fellow in the grass, but it's about a snake. It's just about a snake in the grass. But the, the last, um, the last stanza says, uh, but never met this fellow attended or alone without a tighter breathing and zero at the bone. Like just the way that she said, the way that she says it is so much more creative, so evocative, um, such a way of describing a regular everyday experience that it kind of catches you uh, off guard. So I, I have immense, immense love and respect for her poetry now. And I'm thankful that I revised my youthful, um, my youthful mistake <laughs> and not giving her her due. I think that Katie, that you just described like her ability to say a feeling, even using words that you wouldn't normally put together, like a zero in the bone. Is that how you, is that that line? I'm trying to remember it. Yeah. But a zero at the bone. A uh, zero at the bone, right? Like that, I mean, those aren't words you normally put together, but somehow to be able to describe the feeling in words so that as you read it, you actually have that sensory experience in your body. Something about the way she does that is highly unique. Um, where she creates sensory experiences with words, um, I think is remarkable. So, yeah. Great. So let's, uh, let's jump right in. Uh, and I think between the three of us, we're going to discuss five poems. And uh, before we 
analyze them. We're going to read each poem aloud. So Katie, why don't you go first? Okay, so I'm going to start with one um, that is personifying death. And like I mentioned before, and I chose this one partially because it is one of the ones that's pretty well known. Um, it featured in an XKCD um, cartoon for people who likes XKCD. Um, it's one that, that my freshman would always read. Um, I would assign to my freshman in class. And um, so it's, it's a good kind of entry into her poetry. So I'm going to read it and then we can, we can talk about it. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves in immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste, and, and I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill, for only gossamer my gown, my tippet only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, to centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day, I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. So there's a lot going on in this poem, but there's a very obvious personification of death, right? She's riding with death in a carriage. And um, my favorite part of that poem is the end when she talks about the house and the ground of the grave. And she's kind of speaking from beyond the grave and saying, you know, it's been centuries since the journey into death. And yet still it feels shorter than the day spent heading into eternity. Right. And I've always kind of interpreted that as, you know, the idea that, that walking towards death, but not having actually died, you know, feeling longer than eternity. Um, and, 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 but also I really, I really love this poem because, um, when she's speaking from kind of in a voice that's supposed to be kind of a person who's in the ground, it really makes me think of like, um, like Robert Herrick's infant elegies from, um, the early modern period where he's speaking in the voice of dead children, like, and asking people to leave flowers on the grave. It's that, that kind of physicality about the grave, like, the roof, you know, is scarcely visible. The house is in the ground, like being very, very honest about the physical realities of death. But I mean, do you guys, what, what do you have feelings about this poem or, or are there things that I didn't mention that you particularly like about this one? This is the first Dickinson poem that I learned to sing to the tune of the Gilligan's Island theme song in sixth grade. <laughs> awesome. Do you, you guys know because it's all ballad meter, you can sing uh, most of Dickinson yep. to Gilligan's Island or I, the or no, the Yellow Rose knew. of Texas. Maybe I should have done that because I feel like my reading listeners, I'm sorry about my reading. I don't often read poetry aloud. And so um, I probably sound a little bit stilted. I should have just sung it, Victoria, to that tune. That would have been awesome. <laughs> I, uh, I used to do that in my freshman poetry classes. I would make everybody sing it together. They usually enjoyed it. Um, but the, so you didn't talk about my very favorite part of the poem. So I'm going to talk about that for just a second. I love the stanza, um, that is going through the hours of the day, but it's all cycles. Like the morning, um, is a cycle because it's the school day and the children are playing in the ring and then it's like the harvest and gathering. So like it's cycles inside cycles, inside cycles. Oh Yeah. That's I see, and th this is what I love about Emily Dickinson. I never thought about that. 
I never noticed that in that stanza, even though I've taught it a million times. That's awesome. So it's like it's like everything you were saying about time and and relativity and eternity. All of that is is uh, in that series of metaphors too. I love that. I don't know that I have a whole lot to add. Um, she does a lot of the personification of death, and one of the ones I'll read also does that. Um, I think Katie, what you were saying is interesting to me too. The idea of how time condenses when it's in the passage you just read, uh, Victoria talked about um, that time condenses so that like she basically in that passage in the middle where she passes the school and passes the the grain and the setting sun does a whole like you're saying like ages or time passed in what could be a day in the in the poem so I think that that whole idea when we're thinking about death what does time feel like in death and is it condensed somehow or is it um you know could it could it be possible that the way that we experience a day of mortality a day like anticipating death is longer than what it would feel like to have died and have eternity uh, at at hand, if that's a, if that's real. Um, I, yeah, I think that that whole play, the thing she's doing there with with death and um, time and eternity, is just super fascinating. And she seems she seems so fully controlled and aware of everything that she's doing. She doesn't seem like any of it's just sort of happening. She seems fully aware of the things she's trying to say. You know. Yes, the control is one of my very favorite things about her poetry. And I maybe it goes back to her being sickly, too, or maybe just because, like, that was me as a kid. I want to read everything through that prism. Um, but I, I think it makes sense that someone who uh, spent a lot of time physically out of control and also as a single woman who was not married and who people talked about a lot and she knew this um she didn't have a ton of social control either i think the fact that her poems are so tightly measured and controlled makes a lot of sense you know it's interesting too when i was reading through researching for the episode um one of the kind of really famous literary critics i think it was maybe harold bloom um, put forth the idea, he he kind of um, took the view that even her letters were, he called her letters prose poems. He kind of argued that even in her letters that she was completely in control. That it was, that, you know, almost arguing that she was not kind of just throwing out her, her raw feelings, but that she was still always thinking about the way that she was forming the language. And I thought that was really interesting too. He almost took this view that she was in control at all times, at least of her words. Um, which is really, really fascinating. Wow, um, I, I agree wholeheartedly with the Harold Bloom opinion. That does not what? happen a lot. <laughs> I think it was. No, don't. I'll have to look back, but I'm pretty sure that it was Bloom. He, I think he used the word programmatic when he was talking about her letters, um, which I think is very interesting. Um, and I also just realized, I just had my mind blown while I was sitting here. First of all, because I just read the entire poem again silently to the tune of Gilligan's Island, Victoria, and I'm delighted <laughs> by that. Um, You're but welcome. Also, I, I just realized for the first time something that I missed, well, if I did miss it, and I don't know that he ever said it, if it was or not, but um, I was reading through this poem again, but I don't know if you guys have ever read the Terry Pratchett novel Reaper Man, um, but in that novel, death, the personification of death, like takes a holiday, he's sick of being death, and he ends up working on a farm, reaping the corn, whatever, out in the fields, but um, towards the end of that book, he takes a carriage ride with the el like kind of elderly spinster lady that he who owns the farm where he's working and midway through this carriage ride she realizes that she's been dead like since the beginning of the night like she didn't realize that she was dead and she's in the carriage with death like 
And now I'm seeing that again anew, and I'm wondering if he was if he was thinking about this poem when he wrote that part of the story. Anyway. Uh, yes, he certainly was. I I think he must have been. Also, the la- if you guys have seen um, the recent Coen Brothers Netflix film, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, there's a um, a vignette, the final vignette of that movie. Um, it's a, a series of short films strung together. The final vignette um, must also be inspired by this poem. It's a bunch of people in a carriage. Um, and then the big reveal is exactly what you think it is. Awesome. Um, well, I'll do, I'll do my second poem if we can quickly. Um, this one is the meaning of, of this one I'm about to read is less clear. Apparently, you know, lots of people have different opinions about what this poem means. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to be mean. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to ask you guys what you think it means. And then I'll say what I think it means. Um, So this one, the first line, so what is generally called the title is my life had stood a loaded gun. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile, such cordial light upon the valley glow. It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his I'm deadly foe, none stir the second time, on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. So what do you ladies think that this poem means? It is fascinating to me. Um, I, Cause I think the idea of the personification of the gun at this point, right. Um, but this, this full at the end, like I have the power to kill, but I can't die. So what is she talking about exactly? Is she talking about being like, um, like the, the gift, the vessel, is it about the words that she can use? Is it about, um, does she, cause I mean, there's the idea that art, we are, that artists and writers are but conduits of sort of a, a deeper knowing or a divine word or a divine spark or whatever. So is she considering herself in some ways, uh, a conduit? And in this case, comparing that to a gun. Um, but then at the same time, like, why then does she not have the power to die? You know, is it just the words that have the power to kill and, and yet live immortally? Is that the point that her words are somewhat immortal, which is a, you know, common trope of why people poet, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know. I, I'm a little bit confused as to whether it's whether she's the gun or whether the words are the thing with the power to kill. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. What do you think, Victoria? Uh, so the first time I ever read this, um, I thought it was like this high and mighty, uh, God metaphor, like very Old Testament, uh, protection sort of stuff. Um, Me too, Victoria. That's, that's how I interpreted it the very first time I read it too. Uh, now I just think it's from the point of view of a hunting dog. Like, All right. it's it's about the dog that goes out hunting with the man, who is only valued when he is hunting. You think the dog or the gun? Um, you think it's about the dog? Because, I, I mean, I, I she think is it's, the type. I think it's from the point of view of the dog, who is only valued when the gun is brought out of the corner. Interesting. Yeah. 
Because I think, I mean, she does, she writes really well about things, just to write about the thing, just to make you feel the thing. There's a poem about the bird that she passes, passes on the pathway, you know, who bites a worm in half. And like, she's not writing, there's not a deeper meaning in that poem that I can see other than just to describe this bird and that day thoroughly. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like what the experience of that bird must be like. That's all she's doing. And so I'm curious, because that's what I feel like you're saying this is doing. It's just simply trying to experience, to write the experience of that dog or that gun thoroughly and well in a way that we could feel it. Yeah, and I, I also think, like, everything we've been saying about time and the disjointedness of time is also true here, because dogs age differently than people age. I think, to me, to me the thing that throws this poem into question more than anything else is that she so she uses in line line 14 she uses the word master which i mean you know a gun would have a or a dog would have a master but so she there are a couple of letters that she wrote during her life that address to kind of her master like she would you sometimes use that word and the times that she use it in her letters and I think in poems too, but um, that, that particular term she would use to talk in speaking to, or in speaking of male um, interlocutors. So she oh, described, interesting. Um, yeah. So she described, wow, where's the first one? Um, you know, she had, there was like a series of kind of male influences when she first went to Mount Holyoke. Um, you know, she didn't stay long, but when she got there, um, she was very much, um, she really, um, oh, here it is. Okay. Um, actually when she was, when she was young, there was like a young attorney who worked with her father and, um, they had a close friendship and, um, he was, um, the, he was the second in a series, um, after the, the principal of, of Mount Holyoke female seminary that she referred to as her tutor preceptor or master. Um, and so these were, um, and in the case of Humphrey, who was the principal of the, of the female seminary, he kind of introduced her to different types of reading. Um, and the same thing happened with Newton. He introduced her, probably introduced her to Wordsworth. Um, he gave her, um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's first book of collected poems. Um, and she, she said, and I, I pulled it up. I found, I found it here. I finally found it. Um, she wrote that, um, he Emerson, whose name, my father's law student taught me has touched the secret spring. So it kind of, um, created in her this, this, or gave her all these creative ideas. And so these, the men that she referred to as master, these were men who, um, gave her new things to read or who, um, in some way sparked her intellectual interest. So that makes this whole poem super interesting because if you look at it that way, then then you kind of get this impression of, you know, a young woman um, standing, you know, quietly in a corner, but kind of coiled as if to spring, right? Like full of controlled energy, but um, but at the moment useless in a corner. And then along comes this master who says, you know, here's something you can do, right? Or, you know, like he comes and he's, he changes things by taking the gun in the poem, right? Or whatever out into the mountains to hunt. And now there's this use for it, right? And so I don't know, that's kind of how I, that's, and maybe that's too psychological. That's kind of how I interpret it when I read it. I like is that. that. Okay. Yeah. Is she's kind of, you know, her life before she was introduced to the ideas. And it's even more about the ideas, I think, than the men who introduced them to her. 
um, you know, because she seems almost to have been interpreting the word master the way that they would used to would use it way, way back to talk of like a professor, right? Or um, so I, I don't think it's like a master slave thing or something like that. Um, so, yeah. And, and I mean, I also think that you can't ignore the stuff in stanza one, two, three, four, when she talks about um, like guarding the master's head and it being better than sharing the eider, du the eider duck pillow and this kind of to foe of his, I'm deadly foe. Like that almost, um, I think you could, if I was going to make a case for this having some kind of romantic connotation, I don't think it does, but I might look at those stances and say, well, you know, this could also potentially be an exploration of what it might feel like to feel like you were cast aside or you were all alone and then find a person that you have intense romantic sympathy with and all of a sudden your entire life changes. Like, um, but I don't think that's what's going on. But, it's, um, it's fascinating in that light, though, Katie, because if, if that's part of what she's saying, what she's saying in, in that fourth stanza is, I'd rather actually appeal to that master's mind, to the master's head, and guard his head, than to be on the, on the down pillow with him, than ooh, to yeah. be mm -hmm. wived in that time, right? I'd rather appeal to the intellect of the, of the master than to actually be an intimate uh, bedfellow of, of the master, you know? So, like... That she would say that is fascinating. Also, the idea, I mean, I, I hear you on the idea that a, a master in this case could be like a spark of knowledge, creating a spark of knowledge that would then let the gun unload. The idea of it being an inanimate object that has no use until a man picks it up <laughs> is well, so painful yeah, I mean, I don't know what to do with it. So, and, and I'm, I'm not sure, based on what I read of her and Higginson, I think that's such an interesting thing um, in terms of gender for her to think about. Well, like. If she had that level of energy that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, to be fair, I don't, Higginson, I don't think was that, none of the men she, ref, she I don't think she ever used that word to talk about Higginson though. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, those particular, those particular relationships that she used that word though, I think that the, those were mostly when she was younger. Mm -hmm. And it was it was it was in a situation where um, I mean, that, I feel like there was encouragement of her work, but it was more about opening of her mind. Like, you guys, this is one of the sweetest things I've ever read. So that same guy, Newton, who worked with her father, gave her um, where is it gave her Lydia Maria Child's letters from New York. And then after she read that, she wrote this then is a book and there are more of them. Like she was just so excited. Like, That's so awesome. Excited. Like, and so, you know, um, that kind of, um, uh, coming to life, like when she talked, she said, you know, it's that it's like, it's like a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through like that image is insane. And I mean, you know, she's talking about the flash of the gun, but she's also, that's it, also the, you know, it's what a, it's a cracked, you know, hard exterior underneath, you know, you've got like life anyway. But I could talk about this poem for a really long time, and we need to move on. So um, thank you for your insights about this poem, ladies. That's a great – I love your reading. I'm going to replace mine with that one now. <laughs> that was not my goal. It was just something that hit me like a bolt of lightning this afternoon, and I thought, man, that's a great way to look at the poem. No, I, I love it. Okay, so uh, I am just going to talk about one poem Um because I figured we had enough to talk about, but I am going to talk about my favorite. Um, it's also a fairly well-known one. Uh, I'm going to talk about Tell All the Truth, But Tell It Slant, and I will read it first. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. 
Uh, I've loved this poem basically since I was 10 years old, like I said, um, when I started reading Dickinson. Um, I loved it when I was younger because of how, um, everything we've already said, how incredibly contained but full of energy it is. Um, but I, I love it now in a, a deeper different way uh, because I, I think the poem works in um, two different ways simultaneously. The first more general way I think it works is I think it's about the power of language and conversation more generally um, and it's about um, what we owe to each other, how we have a responsibility um, to think about how we talk to other people and how we create meaning through communication. Um, the fact that uh, true meaning carries a lot of power with it. Uh, that's why the truth needs to have a slant when we speak, especially when we speak to other people. We need to have an audience and a purpose in mind. Uh, the poem also stresses the importance of how good arguments and complex meanings are developed over time. Success in circuit lies. Uh, lastly, I think the final lines of the poem are really about the importance of language in relationship with other people. Uh, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind, not just the people you're talking to, but you yourself, all people are blind uh, if we're not uh, communicating responsibly and, and building toward meeting gradually. Uh, also, um, this metaphor of um, light and, uh, and dazzlingness, it can be um, both illuminating and uh, destructive, like lightning. Uh, I, I'm thinking of the phrase, like, when people say, can I be brutally honest? Uh, the, the fact that, that truth can, can often be, um, destructive. Uh, the second way I can see the poem working is, uh, I, I think it's important that we have two kinds of truth in the poem. There's lowercase t truth and capital T truth. Um, I think the poem is also about capital T truth, the holy kind, the spiritual kind, that we can't fully uh, comprehend or experience this side of heaven. The idea that it's too bright for our infirm delight, uh, it's too much for our mortal humanity to handle. Uh, like 1 Corinthians 13:12 says, um, now I have seen through a glass darkly, but I will see fully. Um, also, those stories in the Bible about being unable to look in the face of angels. Uh, this idea that understanding full context can't really totally exist until um, after death. So more uh, a, a slightly different slant, perhaps, pun intended, um, on what we've been saying before about time and, and death and relativity. Uh, what did you guys think of this poem? Is it one that you like of hers or have read before? It's It's been one of my favorites for a long time, too. Um, and I think that it hit me initially just because um, it seemed a little rebellious. The idea that um, we shouldn't tell all, like we should tell, she says tell all the truth, but tell it slant. But just the idea that she has uh, an awareness of the nuance of truth rather than thinking that, um, you know, thou shalt not lie, bear false witness, you know, rather than it being just a straightforward, like, this is the way you see truth, and this is how truth works. It's a much more nuanced view of that. 
And um, I think that that has always been an interesting thing for me. Um, I think it's always struck me in the way, in the second way you describe it, Victoria. Um, I think that the idea that truth as a capital T truth is sometimes just too, too much for us as humans and that we can be overwhelmed by it. And that in some ways, those moments of, of truth are the things that one would call the sublime or things that are um, in some way uh, that, that, uh, transcendent experience that humans can have, um, but that if we were to have that in a full dose, we wouldn't be able to function. <laughs> this is again where I feel like a little bit of her mysticism comes through, where she thinks that there's something beyond what we experience regularly, and yet we have glimpses of it, and somehow that ties us to a broader, bigger truth, capital T, um, I think is interesting as well. So those are the things I've thought primarily about it. Um, but I also, I love the way you talked about it just in terms of like, hey, our responsibility to communicate with one another is to be aware of what our truth could do and not to take that lightly. Thanks. Yeah, that's, um, that's something that has been sort of added to my vision of the poem as I've gotten older and, and thought about um, why I love language so much. And I think people who, you know, are readers and writers, um, I think we, part of our attraction to language is because it can do so many things. Um, but uh, as Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Yeah, and I, I, I was, I don't have a whole lot to add because um, I, I think I agree with everything you, you both have already said, but I, I do also think um, that what you said, Carla, about um, kind of her more mystical um kind of attitude to spirituality. I think that you can feel that here too, because I, I could see um, thinking about how she felt about, you know, she talked about in some of her poems about celebrating the Sabbath at home instead of at church. And I, I could kind of see her being a person who might um, not appreciate what she felt like were confident pronouncements of capital T truth just said confidently from the pulpit every Sunday. I could see her being a person who enjoyed approaching the truth obliquely, as it were, you know, or in a more um, private way, um, in a more circuitous way, maybe. Um, and, and so I think you can feel that in this poem as well. Yeah, it seems somewhat shameless, which I which I like. She doesn't strike me often as a super like shameless person, but she does have this streak of rebellion wherein like what someone else would call it call um, a secret she would call private, that kind of thing. Like that she like is like, no, that's just mine, <laughs> you know, and there's a certain amount of like um, insistence on her own story and that that's not a thing she she feels ashamed of, but that's her very own. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And people are scared of that. I think I think that that ownership, which I do totally feel in so many of her poems, um, I I think is a, probably a lot of the reason why so many publishers were kind of afraid of her. Yeah, I think that fear is the right word there. I think that that does tend to be the response to this kind of her her kind of like, well, this is you know, even the the idea for her is sort of a recluse who just refused to be what a woman was supposed to be. She just kind of was like, well, no, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. Something about that seemed to stir fear um, in response. So, yeah. Okay, Carla, your turn. Tell us about your two poems. Sure. Um, so the first one, um, and again, all of her poems are not titled. They're just the first, they're often identified by their first line. So this one is, I died for beauty. 
I died for beauty, but was scarce adjusted in the tomb when one who died for truth was lain in an adjoining room. He questioned, so questioned softly why I failed. For beauty, I replied, and I for truth. Themselves are one. We brethren are, he said. And so as kinsmen met a night, we talked between the rooms until the moss had reached our lips and covered up our names. And this one for me, like, I feel like there's so, so much here. Um, and I get all, all giddy about it. So I'm going to have to like contain myself for a minute. Because um, the first bit of it seems to, seems to be talking about like the, the camaraderie of two people who have held ideals together, um, ideals of beauty and of truth. Both of them are capital, capitalized in this. So the ideal of beauty, the ideal of truth, and people who have fought for those things and died with some belief in their um, idealism intact. Um, but then when you get, and so they spend what the first two stanzas of the poem, um, seeing one another, feeling some sense of camaraderie, saying lots of words, talking about their ideals. And then in the, in the third stanza, the poem takes a turn and they talk until the moss had covered and reached their lips and covered their mouths and then covered up their names. And I have this sense of like, again, with her mysticism, that nature sort of overtakes that ideal, the things that they felt were uh, sublime and the things they were working toward and the things they wanted their names to be aligned with become silenced by the moss, by nature, by the thing that they're taken over into in their death. Um, and I feel like that whole, their whole attempt to prove something noble about themselves with their words and with their names just gets erased by nature. Um, and so I, I feel like that's a, it's just a really interesting, again, with her trying to say, are we, are we idealizing truth and beauty or are we actually saying that the moss is the thing that becomes the truth and beauty because it's the thing that overtakes and makes unity of all the things. It's the ideal. It's the one that, that actually in the end is the bigger idea. Um, so I just felt like she did so much interesting stuff in that trying to talk through um, her, her identity with words and the things that the ideals that she strove for and then her somehow constant acceptance of death as the thing that was going to overtake and be the thing that, that united her with the rest. Do you know what I'm saying? That sense of mysticism that just seems to exist in everything for her. Yeah, absolutely. So what I think is great about this conversation and about Dickinson in general is I agree with everything you just said, but you completely did not mention the first thing that jumped out to me about this poem. So like, it's so short, but there's so much in it. Yeah. What so was that? One? She's clapping back at Keats, right? Yeah. This is a clap back at Keats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, beauty is truth truth beauty that is all you know on earth and all you need to know so she's saying like true john keats but also a bunch of other stuff but also moss <laughs> well there, there's moss and odon and grecian urn too um yeah i just I, I thought this was such a great like uh especially since everything that katie said about like the masters and and her being uh kind of energized but going beyond their poetic form yeah, to me, this is a clap back at John Keats. I love that with all my heart. I didn't know at all, and I love it so much. It's incredible. It's such a um, puncturing. Uh, I mean, because she's basically saying, like, he he asks, you know, she asks, well, why did you die? And, and, and she says, for beauty. And he kind of sententiously says, ah, I died for truth. We are brethren. And it's like, which brethren when she's speaking with a female voice yeah. i'm assuming she's speaking in a female voice but then you know but then basically what happens is she's you know she kind of says yeah and so we were talking about these awesome ideals but then but then you know we're gone <laughs> like, i mean it's just it's such a puncturing of that kind of 
keeps right. in, you know, saying that it's it's just amazing. I love it. And, and everything he says about the passage of time and mortality in Ode on a Grecian Urn, she's undercutting here. She's, like, talking about, um, basically she's saying, like, yeah, your art objects are fine, but the moss is going to keep growing. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, and yeah. And, yeah. Well, and the idea then that all the things we do with our words, that, that they are just absolutely going to be... I, I don't it's it's even a little bit with the the one that you were reading Katie about the about the gun like I don't know that at some point nature overtakes all the things we try to prove as as important all the all the grand ideas that we have all of the things like at some point those are going to be overtaken by the fact that we are buried and our mouths are covered with moss and our names are are undone um she has this kind of constant um, struggle between the immortality of, of the poet and this like, oh yeah, no, it's all frivolous to begin with. She never seems to take it as seriously as, as like Keats, you know, well, it's <laughs> in super which case interesting. she's able to clap at him, right? It's so interesting too, because if it, but gosh, it's incredible how you can see all the different strands of her identity coming together in her poetry, because she was a huge lover of Shakespeare and Shakespeare talked a lot in his sonnets about the, you know, immortality um, and, you know, there was this big idea, you know, with Renaissance poets of, you know, the words lasting, the words lasting beyond your lifetime, you know. Um, and so but she kind of seems to be saying, no, it's not really going to work out that way. Um, but also something else that was true about Emily Dickinson is that she was a huge um, devotee of kind of botany. And so she had this huge collection of pressed flowers and the garden apparently at the homestead where they lived was just completely full of flowers that she, um, and I think in Lavinia too, her sister had cultivated. So she was a person who simultaneously was very much leading a life of the mind, but she was very attached to the land or at least to plants. I mean, she wasn't plowing a field in that way, but like she had this connection to nature that I think is intersecting with these ideas of immortality and writing and um, the words lasting and those two ideas kind of collide in this poem in a way that's really interesting. Yeah, she used to send um, people when she would send them her poems um, in letters, she would also send them pressed flowers. Um, and she the 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 idea of the language of the flowers um, was really popular in this period. And she would send them pressed flowers that uh, had something to do with the poetic point she was trying to make. So like really, uh, really interesting, thoughtful stuff. Mm, that's interesting. Cause isn't Moss all entirely networked at its root? Cause the, the one, the thing I keep feeling is this sense of like mystical unity that she somehow is referring to all the time. And Moss is like this super crazy um, interconnected unit, like the the roots are all connected. So I'm curious if she had any sense of that, that there was this yeah, sense Yeah, like, of... uh, oh, what's the word? It's an R, rhizomatic. A lot of mosses um, is rhizomatic, like strawberries. Define rhizomatic, just like that the, the roots what, are connected? What, like what, that it's, what uh... you said, like it's coming okay. from the same, it's a splitting of the, the root, but it's, it's uh, the same plant, but not the same root, a network of right. roots. Right. So that's the thing. I just, I, I feel this sense of her like striving toward a deeper unity than what we find here and the moss somehow, and this is emblematic of that to me. Um, and I, I don't know, I, mysticism is fascinating to me and that all the primary monotheistic religions have some form of mysticism that ends up uniting them in some way or has so many of the same elements. And so when I stumble across a 
poet, especially who has this sense of like, oh, the mystical is right there in everything that they do. I don't know. I find it really fascinating. So it feels it feels present to me in what she does, that sense of deeper connectedness that is beyond what we even do in our religiosity, you know? So Yeah, I I think that's I think calling her kind of mystic is is a a good word to use. I think she has that kind of ability to see and also the the corresponding being socially understood that often socially misunderstood um that often comes with the kind of better seeing like all all my favorite female mystics julian of norwich and marjorie kemp and so many of the saints and martyrs and yeah right right that actually merges us pretty or segues us pretty well into the other poem that i was about to read um that i was going to read because it talks a little bit about um, the difference in what she experiences internally and what she is um, getting in terms of a feedback loop. Like she she has a certain understanding of her giftedness and the feedback loop she's receiving is not that same thing. So I'm going to read that one and we can talk a little bit about that. Like you're saying, like the social circumstances are not necessarily the inner circumstance um, for her in this case. So this one, the first line is each life converges to some center. Each life converges to some center, expressed or still exists in every human nature, a goal. Embodied scarcely to itself, it may be too fair for credibility's presumption to mar. Adorned with caution, as brittle as a brittle heaven to reach, where hope, hang on, I'm going to start that stanza again because it matters. Adorned with, with caution, as a brittle heaven to reach, where hopeless, as the rainbow's raiment to touch, yet persevered toward, sure, for the distance, how high, and to the saints glow diligence, the sky, ungained it may be by a life's low venture, but then eternity enable the endeavoring again. Her poetry is hard to read because it's full of dashes. Do you feel that way when you read it? I'm like, holy crap, what are we doing with the line breaks here? Because it's like all line breaks and then the dashes at the same time. Anyway, um, so this poem to me is super interesting because she talks about how each life has its own center it has a goal like each each you could call it a calling you could call it a passion you could call it any of those things but each life holds this thing that it knows somewhere deep inside but also embodied scarcely to itself like it hardly knows it itself like it's hard to even read for itself um and then it says which this this had all the higginson correspondence all over it it may be too fair for credibility's presumption to mar which I thought, you know, the thing she wrote to him asking for was credibility for her work. And her the response she got was that her work was too delicate or too not the thing. And um, for her to hold this sense of her work still being valuable, even though he didn't give it credibility, <laughs> I don't know, something about that. I felt a sense of um, redemption or something in this stanza that made me feel like, ah, she didn't totally listen to him. She believed in the thing she was doing enough to write 1800 poems, even though he only published 10 or whatever, um, which I love. And then, uh, the idea that even though it's the deepest essence of one's being that it has to be, um, it's as brittle as heaven to reach or as hopeless as to touch as the rainbow's raiment. Um, but that you persevere toward it. And then, that um, the idea that the persevering is the reward in and of itself, the whole seeking is finding idea. Um, I loved in this and that she did so much of her writing and so much of her work without actual reward or feedback just for her own sake. Um, and then um, this last bit again with the eternity, she talks about um, ungained it may be by a life's low venture, but then eternity enable the endeavoring again. 
So even though she may not gain the things she wanted in life from it, that in some way she has this understanding of eternity to be um, a continuation of that endeavoring. So I think in light of all the things that she wanted, she writes a lot about fame and not wanting fame or wanting fame or what that experience would be like. Um, and she didn't have it in her lifetime, right? Lavinia, her, her sister, is the person who found most of her po poetry and had it published after she died. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that, that whole idea that, that she could go through a life with this deep internal passion for words and to spend so much of her time and energy on it and never to have had a sense of, of reward in life for that, but still to have a sense of it being worthwhile. And then whatever that last bit is, that interesting little belief of that eternity will enable the continued pursuit of that thing. Um, I'm curious about like what in that, I would love to have heard her like expound on what that belief was, you know? Yeah, I agree. Cause I, I don't quite know what those lines mean, but I know that I love them um, mm -hmm. because I do think, I mean, I, I, don't think that Dickinson and I uh, share a theology of what heaven is, um, which is fine. But um, I I do know that I get really upset with people who say that heaven is like you just chill on a cloud with God or whatever, and you don't really do anything. Um, I I I I think that that um, that does not line up with my theology of what heaven is. Um, I do think that there's going to be work in heaven. I don't think it's like earthly work. Um, I think it's it's worshipful and, and different and that we can't really understand it um, on earth. But I, I like the idea of eternity enabling the endeavoring, whatever the endeavoring might be. Yeah, I know. I thought I just thought that was super interesting in light of what she might have known. I, I remember as a kid, eternity or heaven being the thing I was the most afraid of, actually. I mean, hell would have been worse. But the idea of like an eternity doing nothing but sitting in, you know, on a silver curb on a glass or on a gold street was like the worst thing I could imagine. I was just so bored to think of it. Um, so yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, that there's some sort of pursuit is is interesting and that she held that so closely or or was willing to postulate that, you know. It's interesting, too, to see her kind of, you know, because we looked at two of the other poems we looked at, she kind of was, had this voice speaking from beyond the grave, but in a very physical sense, like in the grave. So it's really interesting to see her yet again, kind of um, having this, a voice speaking from beyond death, but this is a totally different type of thing. It's a totally different type of voice speaking from beyond death. And it's not, here I am in the grave with moss on me, but instead, you know, in eternity, continuing to strive towards whatever that goal was um you know the the center that that um the that that her life was converging on um and i love i, lo I just in general i love the kind of the way that she states it that each life converges to some center expressed or still um you know i think that that's something that um is absolutely true but people don't always realize or they don't identify it um, and I mean, despite the fact that I think and nowadays there's all this talk about like, what's your personal mission statement or what's your vision or do you have a five-year plan? I don't think she's talking about that. I think she's talking about some kind of deep drive towards something that, um, that like she says might not even be admitted to itself, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I, I, I love that, um, that, that kind of acknowledgement that whether or not people realize it. And I mean, as a Christian, I would argue that part of that is a striving towards the divine, that that's why we strive towards something 
big, even if we don't realize we're doing it. That's why we're more than a five-year plan. Every person's more than a five-year plan for how you're going to like pay down your 401k. I don't know. But, um, you know, that, that we would say that we're, you know, that's the piece of the divine in each of us. And that's not, you know, she's not going into all that, but, but the idea that, um, her idea that in eternity, they're still striving and still endeavoring, I think touches on that a little bit. Right. Yeah. It, she is, in my yeah. in my notes, I have Imago Dei written next to next to that stanza. So yeah, I, I think you're right, Katie. And I do one last thing. Um, I'll say here, and then Carla, you can talk some more. Um, I love that she says converges toward some center and not a center. I I love the the space for ambiguity there. Right, because I think that I I love that Victoria so much because I think that while I totally hear, I agree in the Imago Dei and the, like the divine, that's the, the, the pursuit of the divine, that that actually is, we have this tendency to think that the, so I'm just going to have to go with like, the, it, she is called. We talk a, a lot about she moving calling, the idea of calling from an external voice, calling us to something outside ourselves, to an internal voice. We talk about it as the internal howl of passion. <laughs> um, and that is a divine voice, but we have so often taken the divine voice outside ourselves and made it both masculine and outside ourselves. And so to turn it back internally and allow it to be some center, my center, with my own voice, that is also the voice of God, um, is to me the thing that calling becomes. So that's this whole first stanza is so much um, where she's talking, she feels, it feels to me like she's so deeply aware of that. And it, it isn't, it doesn't necessarily need to be our occupation, um, but it, but it is a thing that seems to exist in all of us that sort of drive to, to move towards some kind of, uh, even creation, some kind of, um, I want to call it like erotic life force that we are, we are that as God is that, and that we get to create out of it. Um, but she, she has such a sense of it, like a, that pulsing aliveness that Higginson refers to, like, she's just so, so alive that she can't help, but like radiate it and talk about that thing as what's driving her. And again, like for her, the fact that this stuff was never for popular consumption, it was her own relationship with the world, you know? Um, and that that felt as she indicates in this poem, like enough, like that, that seeking that doing of the thing that she loved was enough, you know, um, that that made a life worth being, um, it's really inter interesting. I think I can be so driven to have, you know, my the things I do need to have some sort of outcome, whether that's financial or whatever. And and instead, she's saying, oh, just the thing I do is the thing I can't help but do, and it's worth it. You know, is is fascinating to me. I think that is a good point to end this segment on. Uh, Carla, why don't you transition us into our passing on segment? What are you going to recommend for us today? So I am passing on a New York Times article that basically reviews a uh, one-person play of Emily Dickinson's um, <clears throat> uh, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. Um, and so uh, it's this one-woman act, and she does this whole thing. And she also does the poem, um, I Am a Nobody, which is super interesting. Um, but the reason that I referred us to this is because it refers to a couple of, of visual or dram dramatic pieces about uh, Emily Dickinson's life. There's there's this piece, and then there they mention the movie in there, A Quiet Passion, I think is what it's called, which was done, I don't know, how many years ago was that done? That's the um, Cynthia Nixon one, yeah? Yeah, it is, yep. 
So Cynthia Nixon stars as Emily Dickinson. So I thought it would be fun to pass on a couple of like visual pieces that people could look at, dramatic interpretations of her life. I think they're far from true, their interpretations, but I think it's interesting to see what we, when we look back on someone like Emily Dickinson, what we try to create out of it and the pieces we hold on to. So that's what that is. So there are two links to visual pieces in this New York Times article that would be worth watching. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing, Carla, and for making the point that uh, what we say about her says a lot about us. That's a that's yeah. a good point. Uh, Katie, what do you have for us? So um, I, I I kind of am going to recommend based on some of the things we've been talking about with Dickinson. I'm going to recommend two other American poets, <laughs> um, and what you just said is actually a fantastic segue with the idea that um, of seeing in Dickinson what you want to see. Um, when I was reading researching Dickinson's life for this episode, I noticed that. So often in areas of her biography where things aren't completely clear, people want to find things in it that they're looking for. Um, and sometimes that's to do with her sexuality. Sometimes that's to do with um, what her personality is like. So like when we talked about the Encyclopedia Britannica thing earlier, clearly that writer seemed to be finding things in her personality um, that were, you know, to reprove. But um, all of that made me think of a little bit of Anne Bradstreet. Um, I studied Anne Bradstreet, um, her child elegies for my dissertation, but something that I noticed and was very frustrated by when I was studying Anne Bradstreet is that um, a lot of times critics now will um, find things in her um, poems that um, that it seems to me like that they're looking for so that they'll say things like, well, obviously that these these kind of religious beliefs that she's expressing in her poetry, there's no way she could have believed this because that would just be terrible that she's, you know, just believing that God's afflicting her and, 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 uh, you know, all of these babies in her family have died and she still believes in God. Clearly this is actually subversive and she doesn't really believe that. And I'm thinking, okay, but what do the words on the page say? And so, um, and also, um, Anne Bradstreet, like, Emily Dickinson had an interesting relationship to her poems in publication. Um, in her case, they were published, um, quote unquote, without her consent. Um, it's not totally clear if she was actively working against it or, if she, you know, um, it's not totally sure. But um, her poem um, from the author to her book, um, if you've never read that poem, you should read it. Um, it's kind of a brutal um, discussion of the critics ripping apart her, uh, her ill-formed child of the mind. Um, and, uh, so check out the works of Anne Bradstreet. Um, and, and if you're interested in kind of, um, American woman poets and also, um, who may or may not have been kind of cast in certain ways, um, by readers or critics, um, because they wanted to find certain things. And then the other poet I'm going to recommend is going to sound ridiculous, but I'm also going to recommend, um, a little bit of Walt Whitman. Um, but I think, uh, one of the things that, um, we, that Victoria read aloud, um, in Britannica was kind of talking about Dickinson and Whitman as contemporaries, um, and as kind of titans of 19th century American poetry. But the reason I would say to read Walt Whitman and the specific poem I'm going to recommend is I sing the body electric, um, is because yes, to that is the okay. greatest. It's so good. Um, I did a reason mutual guess. I was just muted. Yes. No, that's fine. Um, the reason that I the reason that I think he's great to think about in connection to Dickinson is because to me he is like the super 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 manly version, like in the sense that he's always you know talking about manly men doing manly work. Um, but he he has this uh, he's like the masculine opposite of Emily Dickinson with the same energy though. So she has all this tightly coiled control 
old energy that comes out in these very, very spare poems, but that are just like bursting on the inside with all of this meaning. He is fulsome. So many words, so many images. It's just, he's just like throwing everything out there, but it's that same sense of, and in him, it feels uncontrolled, this almost uncontrolled energy that's like bursting out of him. Um, and so to me, they're so entertaining to read together for that reason. So that's my other recommendation is I Sing the Body Electric by Walt Whitman. Great, great pick. Uh, so I will wrap us up here. I'm going to recommend uh, a piece from the archives of the Atlantic um, uh, through whom Dickinson met Higginson, who we've already talked about. Um, he publishes uh, in April 1862 in the Atlantic a piece called Letter to a Young Contributor. Um, where he gives writing advice and then she writes him later. Um, I already mentioned the question, Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? Um, and they write letters back and forth. Uh, so in this archive republication, an editor of the Atlantic is kind of um, apologizing a little bit on behalf of the, the publication um, for not printing her poems until much later. Uh, they It's ten poems in this archive piece uh, that get printed in 1929. So given the conversation that we've had over the past hour about um, her reputation, her connections to men in her life and publishers, um, and the fact that she did not uh, achieve poetic renown until after her death, I wanted to point to this uh, republication from the Atlantic. And that's all we have for our episode on Emily Dickinson. Thanks so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and check out the notes from this or other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Katie Grubbs and Carla Godwin, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in again in two weeks when we'll discuss the upcoming film Captain Marble. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>